Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, February the 16th, and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Joining me this morning are Jennifer Bray and Pat Leahy from our political staff. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. We have many, many things to cover uh, on this podcast. There's a lot going on. We want to talk a little bit about the Defence Forces. We want to talk a bit about some proposals from Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, and uh, a couple of other issues too, should we have time. But I suppose, first of all, Pat, um, there is a meeting happening later this week, which will be looking at the remaining restrictions on COVID. The word on the street and on the pages of the newspapers and the websites is that there will no longer be masks required in schools. And so the main debate seems to be about what other forms of public space masks will continue to be mandated. Is there anything else significant to consider or is that just that short term stuff that's, that's on the agenda right now? Let me answer that in two parts, right? So there's a senior officials group, which is, I understand, meeting this morning uh, as we speak on Wednesday morning. And uh, after that, that will feed into tomorrow's meeting of NEFET, which is, of course, the first meeting that NEFET has had in, uh, Jen will correct me, I think a a month, certainly since... A couple of um, weeks. uh, Certainly since the big lifting of restrictions at the end of January. And at that point... Neff had said that it would consider the continuing restrictions at that point. One of the most noticeable continuing restrictions, of course, is the wearing of wearing of masks, which is compulsory in a number of settings, particularly in schools. This sense that I was getting earlier this week when we were, uh, Jen and I were writing about it, uh, is that they expect that the, uh, the mask requirement for schools uh, will, uh, will go. It may stay for um, uh, for retail, public transport, or it may become optional. We don't really know uh, at the moment. It depends on the tenor of the, the discussions at today's meeting and then the recommendations made by NEFED tomorrow uh, to, to the Minister for Health after its meeting tomorrow. But very much the sense that I was getting from government is that there is an expectation that that lifting of restrictions will continue. I don't think it'll be the end of people wearing masks. And I know that the Taoiseach said that he would like to see masks being worn in certain circumstances. Uh, For instance, we mentioned earlier, maybe in crowded areas and public transport and so forth. Whether it will be compulsory for people, I, I, I think we'd probably find that out later in the week. But the sense I got from government was that there were many people that I spoke to in government expected that the uh, the, the requirements, uh, the rules to wear masks would go at least in schools and that if that recommendation is made by NEFED, then government would move pretty quickly on it. So you could see, uh, you know, the requirement to wear masks in schools gone by the beginning of next week. I'm slightly amused by this, Jen, because if it's not compulsory, 
Well, it's not going to be compulsory not to wear them either. I mean, so it's just a question of natural choice. And I think a lot of people have got into the habit of being comfortable, more comfortable in certain circumstances wearing masks. And that's fine. I think we can expect that to continue. There's a cultural shift arising out of the huge events we've had over the last couple of years or so. But I mean, masks are being um, done away with all over Europe. I saw Norway got rid of all its restrictions there just a few days ago. So it's really just a question of um, how soon and why we should wait, really, isn't it? It is really, yeah. And it was interesting, actually, in France last week that Taoiseach Mio Martin was talking about uh, this very issue. And he was saying it's his preference that even if, you know, the public health advice comes along and recommends, you know, that you don't have to wear your mask in certain circumstances or in general, that his personal preference would be that people would still wear them in crowded environments, you know, like on the train, on the bus, public transport and in crowded retail settings. And I know another aspect of the plan that they'll be considering at this meeting that Pat mentioned uh, ongoing probably now and in the coming weeks ahead of a final meeting of government before the end of the month will be our longer term plan for, you know, the next stage of the pandemic in the coming months and leading up to the winter. And, you know, the sense that I get is that a big part of that will look at the winter. And obviously we know there's other respiratory illnesses that spread in winter. You've got your cold and your flu. And I think some of the thinking in government would be, would it make sense to have not a mask mandate, not, you know, a, a law that would require you to, to wear a mask. But would it make sense to recommend people wear masks in the winter when you have the spread of those respiratory illnesses? Or will people take that upon themselves to do it now that we've kind of, as you say, there's a cultural change. And many of us, many of us actually feel more comfortable, uh, especially in a crowded environment. I don't know whether you've been on a packed bus recently, but I was the other day and I was kind of thinking, like, how would I feel if this was one month's time and nobody was wearing a mask and the pandemic is still ongoing and the answer would be not very comfortable. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a cultural aspect. There's obviously the aspect of the law um, and the, the the other things that the the officials will consider, obviously, will be in terms of that longer term plan. How often do we get our COVID job? You know, will it be a once a year thing like the flu job kind of looks that way at the moment? And then other issues like how long should we have to isolate if you have COVID? And then even down to testing. So what we'd be looking at future if things continue on the path that they're on now, and we all know that nothing's a given, um, should you test people if they only have mild illness? And that'll be a big part of the question, I think. So, Pat, I want to ask you about the Defence Forces. I should say we've had a couple of listeners who've been on to me on a number of occasions saying we should do a full podcast on the Defence Forces. And this is not that. And they're probably right. We should. In most countries, this is a subject which is a major political issue about, you know, in terms of the proportion of the state's expenditure that goes into um, military affairs. Not in Ireland. One has to say it has, has traditionally been very far down the political agenda. And that has been reflected in the... Um, the amount of investment into the defence forces over the years. And I think it would be very hard to argue that there hasn't been significant under-resourcing and under-investment, even in, in, into the fairly modest activities of the current defence forces. This report which comes out is interesting because it does raise that fundamental existential question of what are they for in the first place? And it offers, I think, three models for the future. One is to, one is to go uh, forward as at the moment with uh, under-resourced, uh, many would argue underpaid, um, organisation which isn't fit for purpose. I think a lot of people would, would agree with that. Option two, I think, is to put a significant investment in so it can do certain things which you would expect a sovereign state to be able to do, like police its own its own waters and its own borders and to guard against new threats such as cybersecurity. And then option number three 
is uh, is, is a bit more fancy, I would say, and actually talks about Ireland rising to the level of many other European countries in terms of the proportion of its budget devoted to the defence forces and investing in things like jet fighter planes, which I don't think Ireland has ever had before. Um, why do we need defence forces in the first place, Pat? I suppose this clue's in the name, uh, Hugh, to it's to <laughs> defend the country against threats foreign and uh, and domestic. Of course, what that doesn't, what that rather glib answer doesn't tell you is, uh, you know, exactly what do we want our defence forces to do? And whilst there is an argument that we shouldn't have an army at all, I'm not sure that that's uh, a realistic one um, or, or will be considered a realistic one in public debate at the moment. In fact, the Dáil is having, I think, a four-hour debate on the report of the Commission in the future of the Defence Forces today. So our discussion is timely in uh, in, in in that regard, right? So, um, but, you know, a, a lot of the time in politics, and when you're talking about the choices that face government, as choices do face this government now on the future of the defence forces, the argument comes down to money. What can we, uh, you know, what can we afford to do? So, you know, classically look at the health service and there's, of course, you know, an infinite, uh, there's an infinite number of things that we would like our health service to do, but, you know, we only have, you know, what was it, 22 billion to spend on them uh, this uh, this year. So what can we get for that? I think the interesting thing about this debate about the defence forces now, which has been prompted by the Commission's uh, report, which itself and the, the report of the Commission was prompted by a sense of crisis in the defence forces, that in fact that it couldn't, things couldn't go on uh, as they had been, uh, as they had been going for uh, for many years. But the interesting thing about it is, is there is now an opportunity to decide exactly as I think you intended to provoke with your question is like, what do we want the defence forces to do? Assuming we do want a defence forces, and I think there will be no political will for abolishing the defence uh, forces and no public support for it either. The question is, what do we want our defence forces to do? Do we want them to be able to defend us from a Russian invasion, for instance? Well, you know, that would prompt a couple of questions. A, how likely is a Russian uh, in, uh, invasion? Not very likely at all. But um, if, if such a thing was to be possible then clearly the defence forces that were required to resist such a move would be very considerable indeed. So what's been talked about, I suppose, is as you outlined there, is those couple of options, options one, two, three. Option one, everybody agrees, isn't an option. Option three is the very ambitious, we're tripling the budget of the defence forces. And the budget of the defence forces is off the top of my head about 1.1, 1.2 billion of which more than, I think, 300 million is army pensions. So we're spending less than a billion out of the 85, 90 odd billion that it costs to run the country. We're only spending uh, less than 1 billion of that on the Defence Force. The vast majority of that goes, uh, goes, in, goes in pay. So I think where this debate ends up is somewhere around the option two, which involves a step change in funding for the defence forces, but not something that requires us to build aircraft carriers and nuclear submarines. But that funding can only be spent in accordance with the priorities that the political debate identifies for what it wants our defence forces to do. So I think most people would probably say in this political will for we want to continue doing peacekeeping overseas. It's the domestic defence bit of it 
that in which the choices will have to be made. Well, what about air defence? You mentioned, you know, one of the options in, in, in the report is for, you know, have a squadron of jet fighters, between 12 and 24 jet fighters that would have the capability of defending Irish airspace from what are now fairly regular incursions by uh, uh, by Russian planes. Now, currently, we rely on, though we don't talk about it an awful lot, we rely on the RAF, the Royal Air Force, uh, to do that. Is that a capability that people w- wish to be, um, uh, wish Ireland to have itself? And what is the co- and what is the cost of it? The ability to defend our maritime area, which is obviously uh, extremely large, with a functioning navy. We currently have uh, m- half our ships are are incapable of being put to sea at any uh, at any one time. Is that something that people want? How much are they prepared to spend on it? The whole area of cyber defence, while a Russian invasion may be a, a long shot. It seems pretty certain that the state will be subject to cyber attacks in, uh, uh, in, in the foreseeable future. Is that an area in which significant investment has to be made in, uh, in, in terms of equipping ourselves with a branch of the military that can defend us uh, against, uh, against, against cyber attacks? So all these sort of questions, it seems to me, kind of precede, they're not unrelated to, but they precede the question of how much we want to spend on it. So I think that's the process that's kicking off in the Dáil today that will take place internally, I think, in the, in the Defence Forces and at, go, at government level. What do we want the Defence Forces to do? And in fact, you know, within the parameters that I outlined earlier, that's pretty much a, a, a kind of a blank slate upon, uh, a, a, upon which we can write now, I think. So that Jen might be a test for our own political system. We'll see, see if we can pass it. I was um, the Irish Times letters page, which, as we know, is a fount of inexhaustible wisdom at all at all times. Has a, a contribution and from on a, all subjects, and has a contribution from a correspondent uh, this morning who who points out that Costa Rica, which is actually one of the most more successful um, societies and countries in Latin America, hasn't had an army since 1949. It's banned from having one by by its constitution. It seems to be getting on all, all right. Uh, Iceland doesn't have an army per se, although it does have. It is aligned with NATO, and it has various forces for patrolling the seas, Massive NATO with customs. There. Yeah, well, that that probably that's probably why it doesn't have an army. But so I, I suppose my point is really <laughs> that, particularly now in 2022, the question of what are the various functions that need to be performed by the state, and the question of what the defence forces need to do is are not necessarily aligned with each other. Pat mentioned the health service. We know the health service has been bedeviled by, among other things, a kind of a parochial attachment to you know local institutions which may not be fit for purpose. And I do wonder that the kind of tasks which Pat describes there, you know, patrolling our our fisheries, having an efficient radar system where we can at least see somebody who are going across it who are who are entering our airspace. And are we comfortable with the fact that that the RAF are doing that for us in in this day and age? Cybersecurity, I'm not sure if that's a military function or or not. That's debatable. What we don't seem to need is a a bunch of lads dressed in um, olive green um, tramping around a parade ground in Adlone, do we? That's the question. And, you know, this debate about the future of the Defence Forces and the need for them and the need for an Irish army has been ongoing for decades. And I know if you wanted to get historical about it, you know, you go back to after the Civil War, it was an extremely bloated, I suppose, uh, defence forces. And, you know, what we've seen since then in a lot of the debates over the decades were debates about cutting it down and cutting it back. 
And the question now that's been raised by this uh, report and uh, in the last couple of weeks is, do we need to have the level three, you know, 2.5 times the budget, three times the budget scenario on squadron fighters, et cetera, et cetera, um, that is recommended by the report. But like, what what are we talking about here effectively? Like, what, what's, the tr- what's the threat that we're talking about? I suppose we're talking about an external, like an external incursion by air or by sea, effectively, um, as one of the one of the many things. But you know, it strikes me that the aggression or aggressor might not be towards Ireland as an island nation, but it could be towards a bigger body like the European Union in the future. You just don't know, um, and and they're the kind of unknowns that the state kind of the government has to grapple with when they make their decision on what kind of defence forces we'll have into the future. And I know that Simon Coveney has talked about coming back, I think, in a couple of months' time and outlining exactly what level we'll be at. It probably looks like something around level two. Um, And, you know, the other aspect that you mentioned there as well, Hugh, is in relation to funding. Um, You know, as far as I know, the figure that I heard about the the cost of all this would be, in the immediate term, half a billion euro. um, And that's a huge amount of money. Um, And, you know... It wouldn't be this one-off investment. This would be um, a package of funding that would be probably in all of the annual budgets. And what that means is that you will have the Department of Defence up fighting against the Department of Health and the Department of Housing every October in the budget for more money. And when you think about the the twin crises in, in housing and health, you can only but presume that the winner there would be health and housing and not defence. So there's a question there about whatever about the level of ambition and whatever about the kind of, you know, more theoretical questions about, well, who's going to invade us anyway? It's can we even afford to fund it? And is the political will there to kind of siphon off a limited pot towards a new avenue effectively? And that to me is a question that will become more and more important and, it, and it's one that Simon Coveney will have to grapple with because he will obviously have to get into all those budget bilaterals, which he already does, but with a whole different <laughs> checkbook that he's uh, with a whole different list of demands for the, for for the checkbook. One last question on this, Pat. Um, there's no reason why a neutral country should under underinvest in its military. In fact, we can see countries like Sweden and I think Switzerland spend spend a lot of on their defensive capabilities in order, as they see it, to maintain their neutrality. Ireland clearly hasn't hasn't taken that route. But there is undoubtedly a perception in some quarters that moves to dramatically increase the military capability of the country, particularly with the sort of conventional weapons that we're talking about, is with a view towards aligning more closely in future um, defensive or military arrangements, be they with the EU or with NATO? In other words, a a diminution of our traditional neutrality. Does that feed into this debate and the way it will play out? I think it will certainly be a part of it. There is, you know, a huge, I think, public, in a way, emotional attachment to the idea of neutrality and Ireland being a neutral country. But in part, that's because we've never actually quite spelt it out in absolute terms. So whilst we pride ourselves on being a neutral country, we also afford, uh, you know, the United States military, the the, the facilities at uh, Shannon Airport. There's no political will to, uh, you know, to end that situation. There's been attempts to do it in the Dáil on many occasions that, uh, that, that, that haven't gone anywhere. One thing that is true 
I think. And I suppose if it's, re- it's, it's related to the events that, you know, we saw in Afghanistan earlier, uh, last year, and in, um, and, and we're seeing in, in Ukraine now, is that, you know, the world is, the world is going through a phase of becoming a more militarily dangerous space. I mean, we've been talking about the possibility of war on the European mainland, a shooting war on the European mainland, you know, in recent weeks, uh, for the first time in in decades. And there is a desire at EU level to progress with greater military um, and defence cooperation. And now we can stay outside that, we can choose not to be part of it. But that will happen over the coming years. It's particularly acute uh, in uh, uh, in in France uh, at at the moment, but also in some other EU countries, and that will be a part of EU politics over the uh, over the coming years. So, I think that the sort of keep your head down neutrality, you know, benefit from the protection, the military protections of NATO, while you know not being remotely interested in joining us. And I don't think there's any public desire nor political will at the moment to uh, to join NATO. But there is certainly the, the question will be faced by Irish governments of whatever hue in the uh, in, in, in the coming years as to what their attitude is about greater EU defence cooperation. And I think that's going to be the backdrop to you know, the sort of questions that we are asking ourselves about what sort of a defence forces that, uh, uh, that, we, that, that, that we wish to have in the future. Whatever sort of defence forces, by the way, to pick you up on an earlier point that you made, Hugh, uh, whatever sort of defence forces we have doing, they will be ba- square bashing uh, around uh, the parade ground in Athlone. Um, armies have, you know, drilled since, certainly since the days of the Romans um, as a means of, well, I suppose it means in the Romans moving their troops from uh, from place to place in a disciplined fashion. So I'm afraid that will uh, that will continue no matter what sort of a military we have. Yeah, I don't know about that. There's various things the Romans did that we don't do anymore, as well as plenty of things <laughs> they did. So you know, that's that, what do the Romans do for us is a subject for another day. But on a, on a completely different topic, though, um, Jen. The kind of the shockwaves from the Ashling Murphy murder last month are sort of continuing to reverberate, including around the, the political sphere. And it, I, at this stage, particularly, I think, in the aftermath of an event like that and the sort of debate which it provoked, you arrive at a point which is you say, well, what concretely can be done? What can the state do in order to mitigate against uh, violence against women in particular, domestic violence as well, which is which is a related subject. And Helen McEntee appears in the Department of Justice, appears to be trying to make some some moves. Um, is she the sort of taking the lead on this in, on the, in, within the government? Yes, because she has to, um, because the, the biggest, one of the biggest criticisms of um, policies in this area over the last couple of years, sorry, over the last 20, 25 years, has been that the various different levers, the various different agencies, the different departments, all of the different things that make up the responses um, to, to women and men and anybody who finds themselves in the situation is that it's a very disparate system, basically. It's a very disjointed system and it's very hard to know who exactly is the, who, who exactly their people are accountable to effectively. 
Um, and there's a huge amount of distrust between different agencies. Um, and we've seen many, many reports. And I think over the last number of years, all of the campaigners and advocacy groups have been joined together in calling for one agency and one minister and one body to be uh, responsible for the entirety of this of this system. And we know that Helen McEntee is putting together her gender and sexual um, domestic violence strategy at the moment, um, and she will be releasing that in March. And a big aspect of this will be that exact question of accountability and who is responsible for all of the different policies and and uh, initiatives that she's going to announce as part of that. So what it looks like, and, you know, Jack Horgan-Jones had a really good piece about this during the week. It looks like we know that the responsibility, for example, for domestic refuges had been with TUSLA. Um, lots of criticism about the lack of availability of refuge spaces, um, the fact that there aren't enough and the fact that geographically speaking, uh, a lot of women can't actually get to the ones that are available. So, you know, in Jack's piece, he was kind of highlighting that that will be taken out of the umbrella of Tusla and put into a new standalone agency. I think we'll hear a little bit more detail about this today, actually. Um, and then that will form a key pillar of the new strategy um, being uh, announced next month. But it is really important because, you know, in the last strategy, which was really heavily criticised by the various different advocacy groups, we heard reports of meetings that happened where nobody knew who they were accountable to. And so then eventually people weren't turning up um, and things just effectively weren't getting done and different levers of the state just weren't talking to each other. And that sounds all very abstract and kind of, you know, what does that even mean? What that effectively means on the ground is that you could have a victim of domestic violence who has had to leave their home, um, who's gone through the court process. Maybe they've got a protection order, maybe they've got a barring order um, and they find themselves without housing. So they go to talk to somebody on the housing, in the housing department, maybe on the housing list um, and they can't get priority, they can't get access. And what this means basically is that that won't happen again. If that, well, this is what the aim is, this is what the political aim is, is to make sure that the different sections of the state respond to each other effectively. So you're talking about the court service, talking to, you know, the Department of Housing, talking to the guards, um, talking to the advocacy groups. Um, and, and that's effectively what we're talking about here. It's actually having a system that works and you need to have an, one agency and one person responsible for that. On the face of it, Pat, that sounds like a very good idea. And and Jack's report, which which Jen refers to there, you know, um, mentions the fact that there's been huge resistance to reforms and streamlining of this sort from within the from within the, the various parts of the public service involved um, over the last few years. I mean, another way of looking at it might be is that it's setting up yet another organisation when there are probably too many organisations to begin with. And, you know, one might express scepticism about how effective that would be. And there are still questions about, you know, lines of responsibility. Um, but something has to be done, uh, clearly. Um, but I just wonder... It's a test, really, isn't it, of something which this state has always always been bad at, which is you've got a really complex situation that requires input from several different uh, government departments. Um, it's very hard to achieve coherence, and this is this is a classic example of that, isn't it? And this this is, as you say, we must do something. This is something. Therefore, we must do this. Look on the foot of it. We'll see when the full details of it comes out. But uh, on the foot of it, it, it it seems like a reasonable response to the, uh, you know, to the organisational challenges that you've outlined there. The Department of Justice is a very cautious and conservative organisation and caution and conservatism are perhaps not the 
best cultural traits um, to be exhibiting when dealing with the problem of domestic violence. So on the face of it, it seems to me that a new agency which will have, I, I guess, operate at, all under the department's ambit and being funded by the department, but at the same time at some distance from the department has a better chance of, I suppose, being more responsive to the needs of the um, uh, organisations that are operating in the front line and, uh, and so forth. So, you know, I guess we'll withhold judgment and we see how well the thing works. I guess it's going to be put on a statutory footing, but will be up and running before it's on uh, a statutory footing. A lot will depend on how it's able to staff itself, what sort of leadership, what sort of culture within the uh, within develops within the organization and how nimble it is in uh, in dealing with the changing requirements of the um uh, uh, of uh, of the area so you know it I, I would often be instinctively skeptical about new agencies being set up by government because very often the, the purpose is at least in part on behalf of uh, the political leadership in government is to insulate themselves from uh, from responsibility of dealing with the day-to-day problems. But uh, on this occasion, I guess I'd, I'd be willing to withhold that scepticism at least uh, until we see how, uh, how well or otherwise the new organisation operates. Let me ask you then from a political perspective, Jen, about Helen McEntee, because obviously she is, um, of, of of all the figures in Fine Gael, she's the one who I think has seen the most significant rise in her prominence and significance within the party over the last three, four or five years to the extent where she is nearly, she's always spoken of as being in the front rank of, of contenders for the leadership uh, if and when that arises of Fine Gael. She is in justice, which as Pat says, is one of the most conservative departments and has at times been a graveyard for the political dreams of other significant political figures uh, in the past. What's your rating of her ability to manoeuvre her way through a place which has done for Alan Shatter and Francis Fitzgerald and where ministers in the past who came in with relatively radical proposals like Michael McDougall, for example, um, didn't get there in the end? Does it look as if she's capable of making making more of a dent in the the steel iron cladding of the Department of Justice? Hmm, I would give her f- four or five out of ten chance of getting through the rest of her term as as Minister for Justice uh, unscathed because it's just such a tricky department, and I think it doesn't matter how good you are at you know um, communicating in the media. Um, at, you know, knocking your civil servants' heads together, at staying up all night working, you could do everything in the world and then something will come along that has just got such political heat in it that it is a controversy, effectively. Um, and the thing is, you just don't know what that will be. In justice, you just don't know. So in that way, I wouldn't be uh, putting out any predictions of somebody getting through this unscathed or not. I think for her, you know, she when she started out in politics, I think she was very shy. I think she was very withdrawn. Um, and that was kind of her maybe her personality, you know, she wasn't kind of the person who, who put herself out there. Um, and then I know that, you know, Pat would know this as well, that when she took on the European affairs portfolio, that when she started, she was very kind of reluctant and, you know, very kind of cautious when talking to the media or talking to anybody or briefing about um, 
Brexit talks effectively. And that as she went on in that role, she gained in confidence and then she became completely across the brief. And then we had like websites like Politico calling her Ireland's secret weapon. And I think that was the moment in around that time towards the end of her stint in that role that people started to pay attention to her um, and her capabilities. And that kind of calm attitude that I talk about, you know, that became an asset that became a good thing, you know, and that's a good thing in justice too, to have a calm head. Um, and since then, obviously, you know, people are always talking about the Fine Gael leadership. And especially now that there's the changeover happened in the Taoiseach at the end of the year, and there's this question mark hanging over Leo Varga because of the investigation, it's on people's minds and people are thinking about it. And this is how this has happened. I know that we had her on the Winter Nights Festival and we did a profile on her in the weekend review and it was just a profile talking about the exact same things that I'm talking to you about. But the next day on the Sunday, she was out doing a doorstep and she was asked by journalists, you know, what's this profile in the paper? Are you, is there a heave? Will you have Simon Coveney in your next cabinet? Will you? And she was kind of going, oh my God. So I think some of it does take her by surprise, but I have no doubt that she has every intention uh, of of um, challenging that leadership. And it was interesting when we asked her on the festival, um, would she put her name forward? Of course, she says, I've, you know, I'm fully behind Leo Varadkar, I'm totally, etc. But she did say something along the lines of, I don't want to limit myself in any way. So there you go. Pat, what do you think? Oh, yeah, no, I agree. Um, I agree with what uh, Jen says. And it's, it's, it's very clear that, you know, she is A, ambitious and B, very able. As Jen says, I saw her at, you know, European summits up close grow from somebody who was you know, had a look, frankly, in her first European summit uh, as almost a rabbit in the headlights, but within six to nine months was totally on top of her brief and, and uh, you know, very capable of uh, of briefing and obviously being a full part of Ireland's team at, uh, at, uh, at the summit. But I would say it is pretty premature. If Leo Varadkar falls under a bus in the morning, is she a credible con- uh, contender for the leadership? I, I, I don't think so. Because she, while she has a top rank ministry, she hasn't been in it for uh, for much of the time. Obviously, she took um, she was the first minister to take maternity leave, and uh, and therefore wasn't in the front lines for uh, for quite a long time. She gleaned a lot of admiration for that, and a lot of very good uh, uh, column inches for uh, for taking that. But it did, of course, take her out of politics for a period of uh, of time. So she's back in it now. I think surviving justice is one of those ministries, a bit like health in a way that, you know, people tend not to flourish in. They survive them or they don't uh, or they don't survive them. So I think her goal will be to survive it. And we will see over uh, over the over the coming uh, weeks and months whether she has the chops to do it. She began with a stutter on the appointment of uh, Seamus Wolfe to the, the to the Supreme Court. She's got some pretty tricky legislation coming up that will um, uh, that that uh, that governs the Gardaí, to which many very senior Gardaí are themselves opposed. That will be tricky. And within just uh, injustice, there is always the the everyday possibility that you wake up some one morning and a landmine goes off under your uh, under your tail end. So I think her period over the next couple of years will really determine whether she is a viable leadership contender or not. 
I'm tempted to ask, but I'm not going to do so because we just don't have the time. Who are the viable candidates apart from Simon Harris? Then, but I'm not even going to... Whole other podcast, Hugh. Uh, that's an entirely <laughs> other podcast because I do want to touch on, a, on another subject, Jen, which uh, is a report from our Dublin um, editor, Olivia Kelly, uh, yesterday, I think it was, but there was a follow-up in, in today's paper um, as well. And it relates to the, the long-term development plans, which all the local authorities are working on around the country at the moment, and particularly to those in Dublin, where uh, more than one local authority has sought to introduce new restrictions on the proportion of apartment buildings that are built specifically as built-to-rent, where all the apartments in them are built-to-rent, and indeed the sizes of them, that they shouldn't exclusively be studio and one-bedroom apartments. A lot of people thought this was a good thing. Um, Those people do not include the planning regulator, who, citing government policy, um, said that they were not able to do so. Is it a good look for Dara O'Brien to be seen to be preventing regulations of this sort being introduced? No, it's a terrible look. It's a really bad look for the government. Uh, end of story. And I think this is a massive story, like it, it, obviously Olivia's story, but generally speaking, uh, in terms of the in terms of the housing debate, I mean, there's fierce resistance to um, uh, build to rent developments, both amongst the opposition, but also amongst communities and, of course, renters who see um, these, you know, developments going ahead and institutional investors coming along, snapping them up, buying them more, indeed funding them and then inflating the price of rents effectively. And we've heard reports of, you know, units being left vacant in the past um, for that very reason. So it's it's a massive issue. And I think Olivia's story is so interesting because often when you, you hear, you know, debates about bill to rent and, and about this particular aspect of the housing market, you hear about how important the planning side of it is. Uh, and, and how important the regulator is in relation to this. And, and Olivia's story kind of outlines how these controls um, on the developments that effectively they're being blocked. And she was pointing out that the deputy regulator, Anne-Marie O'Connell, told the council to not go ahead with measures to stop developers from building blocks with no homes for sale and to omit from their plans, city development plans, um, restrictions on the number of studio and one-bed apartments. That's important because another part of the debate has been around the size of these units, you know, and one criticism that those who are fiercely opposed to it use that these could be the tenements, you know, of the future. And I don't know about that, but it's just one of the criticisms that's kind of put out there. And it's interesting to look at, like, the reasons why build-to-rent developments and the concept for it was introduced years ago. And this was to actually solve the issue of the undersupply um, of rental homes in specific areas in Dublin. Um, and then it just became this, it's just mushroomed, just become this massive sector, uh, you know, going out into the suburbs and and beyond. Um, and now we see like a huge amount of the applications that are being made, uh, to, you know, in terms of the, the developments are actually these built to rent ones. And I think there's been, you know, 20% of uh, all submissions to onboard Planola are in relation to this, in relation to large-scale rental-only developments. So, you know, we have this issue then where if there are no restrictions or rules in place or if the deputy regulator is saying that they shouldn't be in place, where does that leave the government in relation to defending um, its record on housing? Because if, you know, if this is part of the reason why rents are being pushed up or remaining quite high, what will be their response to it? And I think it's just... It'll be fascinating to see how it plays out. There's just so many different layers to this debate. I mean, I think this is an appalling look for the government, uh, Pat. I mean, it's obviously some of these measures have gradually been introduced over over the years, the ones which the planning regulator was 
was basing her deci- her decision on. And but effectively, what they amount to is uh, the elimination of um, homes that people can buy within certain urban areas. All the developments I see around where I live in Dublin, for example, are are built to rent. They're largely very small apartments, too small for people, say to. To, to raise a family in, in most cases. And they're also, you should also mention the fact that because they're built to rent, the um, the standard required in terms of storage space and, you know, general amenities is is lower as well. Um, and the government has to stand over all that and prevent local authorities from introducing better standards. It goes against everything which they say they're, they're supposed to be looking to, to achieve at the moment. Yeah, I'm slightly in two minds about this because, you know, Homes to rent are still homes, you know. However, their ownership structure is, um, uh, you know, is is uh, is organised. Um, but at the same time, as I understand it, the planning regulator's role is to ensure that local authorities comply with government policy. So, if government doesn't like what the planning regulator has done, then surely it can change its policy and it can uh, issue a statement of uh, of uh, of policy or or, or whatever. Um, so as to make what the local authorities are doing compliant with government policy. So I, I, I'm, I'm not sure it should necessarily be as intractable uh, as, uh, as all of that. On the broader sense, you know, if you talk to people in government about this, they, they, they do evince a sort of a sense that progress is being made. They expect to get hammered on housing for the foreseeable future. But they do point to the number of starts that are beginning uh, to take place. If you look around the city, you see an awful lot of building going on of whatever uh, of whatever mix it, it may be. And, you know, you it, we, it does seem that we are getting to a situation which will have the, you know, whatever it is, you know, 30,000 or so homes built uh, every year. Uh, that government policy says is required to meet the uh, the the needs. I'm, and you know, if you got three years of thirty thousand before the next election, that's got some hundred thousand homes. Does that make an appreciable difference? I'm not sure. It's a. Dif- I think it would make a difference, but I'm far from convinced that it will make enough of a difference to change the politics of this for the government. The real danger for government is that a whole generation feels itself shut out of home ownership. It views that in through an acutely political lens. And I don't think that even the tens of thousands of homes that are likely to come on stream between now and the next election at this juncture, anyway, it seems to me are going to be sufficient to change that sort of political matrix that is there at the moment on uh, on the housing crisis and and the political effects of it uh, for the government. Last thought on this, Jen, given that you're the representative here of that generation, which has been kept out of the the property market, which Pat refers to there. Well. Maybe it's just the face cream I use. Maybe I look younger than I am. <laughs> she speaks to us from her luxuriously appointed townhouse. It might be your my Zoom house, filter. Yeah, well, my place. Everything is falling down around my ears. The heating keeps stopping and starting. But um, yeah, do you know what? My final thought on this would be that it strikes me that yeah, I, I agree with Pat what he says about the the supply and where that leaves us in three years. 
But one of the aspects of the government's plan to tackle the high cost of rent this year that they keep mentioning is cost rental. Um, And, you know, you could get into the ins and outs of debating that all day long, which you don't have time to do, okay? But the the scale of the cost rental developments that they plan to have up and running by this year, um, it's just not going to be enough. It's And I think everybody in the Department of Housing knows that. I think the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, knows that. It's not going to be enough this year to bring down the cost of rent. So we're looking at this inflated market, this, you know, these massive rents of, you know, two people, a couple paying at least two grand if they want to live in Dublin, work in whatever job or they're working in or other cities as well, you know, like this is across the country. So my my point is that even the measures that are being touted as being, you know, potentially effective this year won't be in terms of the rental market. And then when you couple this with, you know, the debate around bill to rent and the headlines today, uh, Olivia's piece, um, it's just a bad look. It sure is. We shall we shall leave it there. We we will come back. We'll do a full podcast on cost rental. I promise, and maybe even a full full podcast on the defence forces. And we'll definitely do a full podcast on who the next leader of Fine Gael is. But uh, do keep an ear out for tune in for next, next week one because well, well, maybe next week. Indeed, we have lots of other good stuff coming up over the next while. So do keep an ear or an eye on your podcast feed for additional podcasts coming up over the next few weeks too. But that is it for today. So thanks to Jenna Pat, thanks to our producer Jennifer Ryan and our engineer JJ Vernon. You can. Send us your questions, your points, your views, your opinions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 